Hello, and welcome to Found, TechCrunch's podcast that brings you the stories behind the startups from the folks that are building them. It's me, your host, Becca Skutak, and sadly, I'm flying solo in this interview, so there will be no fun and witty banter after the conversation. You missed Dom a lot in this episode, but of course, I was not completely alone. For this episode, I talked with both Carly Zakin and Daniel Weisberg, co-founders and co-CEOs of The Skim, which is a digital media company that aggregates the news in a multitude of newsletters geared toward millennial women. It was a really fun conversation. We got into things like how they divide responsibilities as co-CEOs, how they've weathered a bumpy media landscape over the past decade, and what they would do differently if they could go back and do it all over again. Let's get right into it. Hey, Carly, how's it going? Good. Thanks so much for having me, having us. (laughs) Thanks so much for coming on. Danielle, how are you doing? Hey, Becca. Thanks so much for having us. Excited to be here. Definitely. No, I'm really excited to dive into this one. It's so rare on both this podcast as well as in general that working for a digital media company, I get to kind of talk to another digital media company. So I think that might be a good place to dive in. Why don't you guys start by just telling us a little bit about The Skim? Sure. Well, we started The Skim from our living room couch in 2012. And it has become and grown from there into a digital media company dedicated to giving women the information they need to navigate life's most important decisions. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious because I know before we got on this call, I looked into it a little bit because I was trying to remember the timeline of this, knowing you guys launched in 2012, certain other media companies focus at women like Bustle. And I was like, did those come first? Did you guys come first? And it seems like you all launched within the span of a couple of years. And I'm curious when you guys were thinking about getting started, why did you guys decide to launch the skim? And what hole in the digital media landscape were you guys looking to fill with this? Yeah. So I think first of all, you know, Danielle and I came from working at a legacy media company that it's funny to kind of go back in time. There were at the time what every kind of company town hall was about was like digital media and like new media. So, you know, that kind of ages us a little bit, but we also literally never heard the word millennial. So imagine that like (laughs) it wasn't overused yet at all. But what we did know very quickly was like these town halls we were going to, the programming that we were even working on was not reaching our friends. And the new media that had kind of popped up, our friends were not engaging with. And so when we kind of like actually literally Googled like millennial, because we that's our demographic, and we really understood the stats of millennial women and the unique power of our generation, which honestly only compounded over time, we were like, oh, like this is a huge business opportunity. This is the generation that's about, you know, at the time about to become the breadwinner. Now she is the breadwinner that is about to be influencing trillion dollars annually. Now she is influencing three and a half trillion dollars annually. We were like, this is going to be the most important demographic to our economy why is there not information being not just like catered to her, but catered to her daily routines? That's why we were like, we have to do this in email. It has to be first thing in the morning at the time. And that really kind of gave us the focus to start what then became the daily skin. I was just going to say, Becca, when you talk about, it's so funny in terms of like entrepreneurship and years, right? Because for us, your question was around who started first. Given that, you know, we started it from our couch and we bootstrapped it for a long time. So we didn't hire a team until we were almost two years in. And so I think that there was a real authenticity 
to our story and to the fact that there were two women behind a new kind of venture in media. And that felt very different than companies that were also tackling women's lifestyle, but didn't necessarily have that same sort of founding story. The other thing is that we started from a news background and the skim has really grown to serve her and meet her where she is from entering the workforce through all of the stages of adulthood. But when we started, it was really the idea was recreating morning television in a much more digital friendly environment. What do you use to wake up? What do you need to know in those few minutes before you jump out of bed or hit the snooze? But hopefully we were really part of that one eyed open routine and that habitual sense of feeling like a friend starting your morning. Uh, we were putting in front of our audience and getting them at that moment in time through a newsletter was a really different part of the digital media landscape. At the time, there was still a lot of kind of these print brands that we had all grown up with and had a lot of affinity for. And then you had other companies starting that were going after the same audience, but going after her from much more of the fashion lifestyle angle. And our angle was really about what are the gray spaces? What are the things that she needs to feel like she can trust someone to get information and no one is serving her, specifically her? And that's really where we focused and we grew from there. And since you've already brought it up a few times, the fact that you guys really launched this through a newsletter format is super interesting because thinking about it now, it's like everyone has newsletters, newsletters are everywhere. But back then, I mean, like I wasn't reading newsletters back then. It just wasn't a thing that was as common. Was starting this as a newsletter always the plan or did you guys think of other potential ways to get started and add it on later? Sort of like, how did you guys land on newsletter being like the right format for this? Yeah, so... You're right. At the time, there were very few newsletters that people enjoyed receiving or or companies were using. So we do like to say we started that trend for sure. But what we did realize, as Danielle just mentioned, like the one-eyed open routine, routine was like the key. We were like, how do we reach our friends? What our friends represent? And we knew we were like, okay, first thing we all do, like wake up. I like, I had sneezed many times, but like, I look at my phone literally with one eye open. I'm like, did anyone like, you know, any family or friend like text me something important? I would check my email to make sure like my boss at the time didn't email me or, you know, like my mom didn't email me something. And from there, like get up, do my thing. And then like actually like sign on and like, you know, look at the other stuff. And so we were like, we have to be a part of that first part. The before you get out of bed part. And so we knew we were like, well, the way to do that is it has to read like it's from your friend, like from your best friend. And it's got to be an email from your friend. And so that's why we did email. That was kind of the origination of, or the origin rather of the voice of the skin was to make it sound like this is your best friend. And I think that turned out to be maybe the smartest thing we've ever done. If I'm giving us a, a lot of credit for, for making long-term decisions in the, in those first moments of, of building the company for years, brands have been built on third-party data. And now we are seeing with Google phasing third-party data out, it's a real issue for a lot of those companies who have been able to scale based off of that. And they're trying to figure out how to maintain and build their audiences. And in the bigger picture, 
That means brands will be looking at newsletters as a primary way to reach their audience. And, you know, that's something that we're obviously very familiar with. They've been the backbone of our business for many years, which allowed us a really strategic advantage because we weren't subject to the SEO game. We weren't subject to having to build around, you know, a platform. And I'm I'm using Google in that way, but it can also be applied to social algorithms as well. Our business model has always been centered around zero and first party data because we were able to create a direct line of communication with this very sought after audience. No, and what you mentioned about the newsletter format is so true because I actually was just talking about this with our producer, Maggie, I think literally yesterday. And she was like, how do you start work so early? And I was like, oh, I start work by waking up opening my phone and reading about 12 newsletters. Then I get up and go to my desk. So it's like, it's very interesting to hear you guys talk about it from that. Cause like being the user on the other side, I'm like, yep, nope, that's correct. Like that's literally how I like engage with the news in the morning. But I also want to take a step back to something you guys said a couple minutes ago regarding that you guys didn't hire for quite a while when you got started and you bootstrapped the company. And it really was sort of this two woman show for a long time. And I'm curious if you could talk about what that was like, because you hear about other companies like, oh, we were grinding away, we're two engineers doing this and that. But you rarely hear of like a digital media company being like, yep, we just wrote it all ourselves. We built the company at the same time for a couple of years while funding it on our own. What were those first few years like for you guys, both professionally, but also personally trying to get this off the ground? Danielle, I'll let you take this. <laughs> I'm having real flashbacks of of the level of exhaustion. I was just thinking it's been a while since we kind of mentally revisited that period. Well, the first thing to know is that we quit our jobs with a couple thousand dollars saved up. You know, we were in our we were like 25 years old. We had no business background. We had no tech background. And I think that level of naivete was probably the most a helpful thing that we had because we had no clue how hard this was going to be. And I I think that's true of any entrepreneur, first-time entrepreneur, but we also had the excitement and the knowledge that there was no safety net. There was no safety net financially. Emotionally, it was the two of us in it, and we were the only ones that were going to be advocating for it to get off the ground. So we have raised the skim in over 11 years, under $30 million in funding. And we have notable investors, GV, RRE, Graycroft, Disney. At the time when we started, we had raised a small amount of money, which was basically enough for us to pay our, our WordPress fees and be able to send the newsletter out, design a little bit, and for us to actually be able to quit our jobs to do this. That was it. And with that, everyone talks about like a friends and family round. You know, that was not, I would say we had to pitch. This was like we were new to the game and we had people really believing in us. And that meant a lot. So what that looked like was that we were working around the clock. We slept in shifts. We wrote the newsletter through the night and updated it until it went out at six in the morning. And then we would get a few hours of sleep and then we would try to get the business off the ground during the day. And we got very good advice a little bit further along in our journey that when you are building any sort of business, you can either go for audience growth or you can go for revenue growth. We decided to go for audience growth. 
And that meant to us, because we had no budget for audience acquisition, we had no budget for, you know, thinking through, do we advertise here or there? We would print out t-shirts. If we saw that a celebrity or influencer posted about us, we would print the one-off t-shirt and send it to them. Oh my God. We send it to our friends across the country and just ask them to wear it, you know, when they work out or when they go out for a walk. We did a college tour, which meant that we were not invited to any of these campuses, but we were like <laughs> show up in our skim shirts and kind of leave flyers under the door in different dorms or sit in the cafeteria or stand out on the walk. We launched a, a brand ambassador program that definitely had college age students, which was amazing, but it was also a lot of women who were interested in entrepreneurship, wanted to be part of the journey, and they helped us really grow it through a grassroots way. So after about a year and a half of doing that and getting a lot of no's when we were trying to raise money, despite this really grassroots viral audience growth story, which we saw in the numbers, we would celebrate like every milestone. We knew when we wake up, this is how many people subscribed. And when we went to bed, this is how we ended the day. And that is kind of how we lived and breathed success. So we finally met Homebrew Ventures. We were their first New York investment and Hunter and Satya were our lead in our seed round. And through that, we were finally able to hire a team, which meant I think we hired five or six people, got a very, very tiny office above a bar. And that started, you know, the next phase of the journey. And since you mentioned the investor piece of it, too, it sounds like you guys, like you said, you got a lot of no's. Like, what did people think about this idea when you guys were first getting off the ground, especially because you were new to this category? This wasn't something there was a lot of examples or success stories you could point to in the category already. What kind of feedback did you get as you were going out to pitch? Well, again, like not to age us, but if you were going to raise money, it was coming from San Francisco. Like there was no venture. I mean, like you could count the three funds on your hand of like the venture funds in New York. And there were a few celebrity funds in, in LA, but the money was in San Francisco. And Silicon Valley hated us. They didn't get it. They, when we would go, I mean, I honestly, like I haven't been able to go back to San Francisco without like literally like physically <laughs> remembering the feeling of hearing no, because we were told, you know, you need a technical co-founder. You have to find one. It was large at this time. Like, I don't think we ever pitched a room that had a woman in it. And so what we would hear was, my wife likes this, I think. Or let me see if my wife likes it and I'll get back to you. And we're like, is your wife an investor? Like, I'm happy to have her sign up for this game. But like, why is your wife, who we don't know anything about, going to determine whether or not you're going to write us a check? Right. We were told that this was not scalable. We were told email was dead. That was my favorite because that was usually emailed to us. Like oh. we, they would send us an email that would be like, email is dead. And I'm like, it's amazing you revived it to, to send us this yeah. note. So those were like the main themes of why. And, and I think there's one other one, which I, I really love to laugh at today and certainly laughed at then is women are a niche market. Oh, wow. Why are you focusing yeah. on them? Just a handful of us, you know? Yeah. You know, it's, just, it's only yeah. like 10 of us. So like, you'd be shocked how many people said that. And so I think because so much of that feedback was so ridiculous to us that we were like, we don't like this place, Silicon Valley. We're going to just keep going. I think if the feedback had been like, 
the writing really sucks or like you guys like don't seem like you could work together. Like maybe we would have like taken it to heart in a different way, but we just so vehemently disagreed or didn't understand the feedback we were getting that we were just like, we got to keep going because and I think this is where we were lucky that it was, you know, we were in a consumer product space we would get no's, but then we would get that same day, like, you know, five new thousand people that would sign up. And, right. you know, we were getting notes from our readers being like, where has this product been all my life? Like, can I be a skin ambassador for you? Can I work for you? And so the fact that we were hearing directly from our target user, how much they loved it and how sticky this was, and then getting no's from people that weren't our target at all kept us going. No, it's so interesting to hear that because we just did a recent like a year end wrap up episode for 2023. And one of the things that my co-host Dom and I talked about a lot in that is that we felt like every time we talked and not just to women entrepreneurs either, but mainly women entrepreneurs, it'd be like, oh, I've landed Chipotle as a customer. And VCs are like, I don't think this, no one wants this. And they're like, I've landed Chipotle as a customer. And VCs are like, oh no, no one wants this. And like that clear divide of demand is so interesting. And it seems it's still, I mean, it still exists today. I hope less so, but it is very interesting to always like hear about more examples of just that weird disconnect with investors. Yeah. But one thing I did want to ask you guys about, because I know you guys both worked in the news industry, legacy news companies before starting this game, but you guys knew each other from prior to that. Maybe if you want to talk about kind of like how you guys met and did you yeah. ever think you guys would start a company together? We are happy to talk about our meet cute. I think in the <laughs> beginning, you know, in, in New York and kind of like 2012, when everyone was starting a company or going to like the meetups to try to, to meet a business partner, that was one of the advantages that we had. It was like, okay, we found each other. Let's figure out everything else. So Carly and I, Carly grew up in New York. I grew up in Chicago. We both grew up obsessed with storytelling. And that showed up in terms of internships and a real passion for news and journalism and politics. So we both worked for NBC News. But how we met actually was on a study abroad trip in Rome. So we went to different schools and we wound up on the same program. We had a lot of fun in Rome. We did not talk about how, you know, years later we were going to start a company and create this, but we did know each other. And a few years later, when we were in our, our early mid-20s, we were working for NBC News. By that time, we had reconnected in D.C., then we had both moved to New York and we were working at 30 Rock. We were working at different parts of NBC News. So between the two of us, we've kind of crisscrossed both NBC News, MSNBC, CNBC, long form documentary. And we were also roommates in a very small apartment. And I think one of the things that I would say the main thing that separates you know, entrepreneurs from people that have good ideas is doing it. And the best way to ensure that you are going to do it is to come home to someone every single day who also has the same idea. And we just talked about this, like we called it Project TBD. That was the name. We knew that it was never going to get easier for us to start something. That, you know, by no means 
does that mean it was easy? Right. There was a huge amount of risk and honestly, terror, kind of an out-of-body experience quitting our jobs that we had worked and honestly never thought that we would leave. But it was a recognition that we were at a point in our lives that the only people we had to look out for were ourselves. And that may not be and probably wouldn't be the case forever. And so let's try it now. More from this conversation right after a quick break. And I'm curious, so you guys are co-CEOs. And was that always the plan from the beginning? Or did that, why did that make sense? Because you always, we've gone back and forth on the show about co-CEOs versus some places it really works, some places it doesn't. Like it is such an interesting structure. Why did that make sense for you guys? It was always the plan. And I think one of the best pieces of advice we ever got was from a lawyer who was not even our lawyer who we like interviewed. And he said, you guys are going to need to like have a prenup. We were like, what? Like, we're not married. Like, what are you talking about? He's like, no, you need to go get a bottle of wine. And you need to talk about everything like you're creating your prenup. So we literally like got a bottle of wine and we talked through everything. Like what happens if one of us needs to take a break? What happens if one of us, you know, this happens and like, or we disagree on this, like what happens? And we kind of, you know, we talked through pretty much everything. And that was like our LLC partnership agreement uh, back when we were in LLC. And we, we knew that like we, we came into this completely equal in every way that you could be equal in something, both in ideation, with finances, with workload, all of it. And that that was our red line. And that actually was, again, when you look back, like, what are the smart decisions that we made? Like, thank God we were like stubborn on was this was one of them. It made it really easy to not work with certain people that were like, you know, would push like you're going to need to only have one of you. And the investors that we did bring on completely got why this worked. You know, I'll say Homebrew Ventures, like Satya and Hunter have a very similar relationship to Danielle and I. Like they got it. For sure. And I think when you think about like what's the magic of the skim and how did we get the company from where it was back then to where it is today, it is because there have been the two of us as co-CEOs. We make like, you know, now I sound like we're writing a romantic movie, but like we make each other better. Um, And I think that that is the secret sauce. We get asked all the time from people looking for advice about like starting a company. Give me advice on like starting a company with my friend. And we're always like, don't do that. (laughs) Like, I think we, we know that that is, it is a very rare thing that this works. I don't know how to tell some, like give somebody the advice of like how to make it work for them because I think we're really lucky. But I think at this point, it's like our friendship is like family and, you know, our co-CEO relationship has made the company as strong as it is today. And how do you guys think about dividing responsibilities, especially because as the two co-founders, you do hold the same role as co-CEOs. Is one person more focused in some areas than others or kind of like, how did you guys divvy that up, if at all, or do you kind of like work on everything together? No, we did. I think the company grows in different ways, you know, quarter over quarter, in some cases, month over month, and definitely year over year. And because of that, there were stretches of time where one of us would be more focused on a single area of the business, and we would divide and conquer. That does not mean that, you know, one of us had an engineering background and the other one had an MBA. It was really 
I would say twofold. One was what does the company need right now? What is the area and who has the time given the other things that were going on to tackle it? The other thing I would say is that Carly and I have different personalities and we have different ways of leading. So there have certainly been areas and periods of time where one person's approach has been better suited for the needs of a part of our organization that really needed more focus then. So that was something that we talked about. We would start each, we still do, we start each week with, you know, what are our priorities? We go through our schedule. We talk through what we need to get done at the end of the week. Does the schedule map that? And who is taking what? I think as, you know, the company has evolved and we brought on really phenomenal leaders, it has now become much more of these are the things that we do really well together. We love brainstorming. We love working on creative direction and marketing. And that is what I think kind of has brought a certain level of magic to the skim. And we are lucky that we also have phenomenal leaders who are very much focused on the functional areas in the day-to-day. And something I wanted to ask you guys about, just, I mean, same with me. I also work at a digital media company and have gone back and forth between print and digital media companies, my journalism career thus far. But digital media companies have had sort of a roller coaster of a time for the last decade, just the category in general. It was really hot for a while, and then people were pretty bearish on it. People have been bullish on some areas. It just hasn't been a smooth, say, up and to the right line. Not that any category actually has that, but it's definitely been a bit more of a roller coaster. And I'm curious for you guys, the space has changed so much, perception has changed so much since you guys got started. How do you guys feel you've been able to navigate it up until this point? I know you guys had layoffs last year, which is common across the space as well, but kind of like, how do you guys feel like you've been able to sort of stick around this long and lean in when the industry behind you has changed? It's a great question. And I think as you're kind of delicately putting it, I'll, I'll say it more bluntly, like media is a disaster right now. You know, and every industry is going through a lot of turmoil. I think media in particular is having kind of an identity crisis, if you will, because so much has changed. And I think we've been around long enough to have seen certain trends come and go. And when I look back, I'm like, what are the things, what are the decisions that we made that I am so grateful we made? There were years where everyone around us, investors, advisors, peers, et cetera, were pressuring us to like just go big, get as many people as possible to sign up, stop worrying so much about like your engagement and your open rates and like just go big, go much bigger on the social platforms, like be using, you know, all the social platforms in a different way. And for lots of reasons, but honestly, I will, you know, lots of very like smart reasons. And then one was just like a gut reason was like, we did it. And I think one of the smartest things that we ever did, and I'm so grateful for is we built with real engagement. Like when we say our user numbers, like that's real. Those are real users that like we know, we engage with, that actually read what we put out, that follow us and transact with us when it's time to make decisions in their lives. That trust that we built as like a foundation is our greatest asset as a brand. And that trust has allowed us to scale beyond here's a daily skim newsletter that gives you the news you needed in the day 
into a company that has a digital ecosystem that touches on her financial health, her wellness and mental health, her starting a family and parenting and her purchasing decisions. And that scale has allowed us to be in a place where we can go deeper with our audience and be in a place where, you know, we like to say like we're about the calories and not the clicks. When we've seen a lot of places really struggle is that they went for the clicks. And I think that the other part of kind of having this foundation of a relationship with our audience is that, you know, Danielle mentioned this earlier, we have been built on zero and first party data well before like those were industry terms. Like I don't even think anybody phrased zero party data. And what that like literally means is we've just had a direct relationship with our audience that has allowed us to know like, here's how we can better serve her. And what that also means is it's insulated us a bit from a lot of things changing with third-party platforms, you know, specifically the social media sites. And I think it also has meant that that relationship is real and, and it's there and it's insulated us a bit from a lot of what has affected the industry at large. So certainly we haven't been immune to ad market fluctuation and, you know, macro trends. But I think what it has done is it has really set us up in a very strong way to this direct engaged relationship with our audience where we've mastered the ability of like actually how to create action with her and transaction with her. And sort of looking back at how far you guys have come so far, you've talked about a lot of good decisions you guys are happy you have made from the beginning, looking back at it now. But if you were, is there anything you would change? Oh my gosh, so many. If you were to say, start the company over. <laughs> That's a different podcast. Oh, yeah. So much. <laughs> yeah, I think, whew, I think that the biggest decisions, I think it's always about leadership style and the decisions that you make regarding who you work with and who you spend your, your time and your energy on. I think that Carly and I always have had really good gut instincts and the times that we think about going back and redoing something, it's usually because we knew what was right and we didn't do it for whatever reason. We had a feeling we went against it and that shows up in dozens of different ways. But if you go back and you diagnose it, I think that that's really where a lot of the things we would redo stemmed from. I think also like very tactically, it took us a long time to kind of understand this, but should always be six months ahead of when you think you're going to need to hire somebody. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of our earliest leadership hires came six months too late. And so when I look back of like when we should have hired the C-suite team or the exec team, like we were too late on that. And I, you know, those are things I would have gone back and, you know, done in an earlier time. And we just have time for one last question. So before we hop off today, I definitely want to know what you guys are thinking about for the future. Skim's been around now for 12 years. What does the next 12 look like? Well, we become the go-to source for this audience and continue to anticipate her needs. This year, we've not only been able to grow our audience offerings with our SkimWell newsletter and, and parenting content, but we've also diversified our revenue streams. So we also have SKM Lab, our in-house creative agency, and Skim Shopping, which really leans into our commerce brand. So we've grown you know, so much in the 11 years since we've started. And I can tell you the common thread in that has been anticipating what this audience will need, looking at what's going on in all of our lives, 
how we are going to be affected from what's going on in systemic changes to the rise of certain technologies, looking at AI and making sure that our audience is prepared and feels like they understand the critical things that they need to know and that we give them both the information and the confidence to make choices that are right for them. Well, I think that's a perfect place to wrap. So thank you so much, Danielle and Carly, for coming on the show. This was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Becca. Found is hosted by myself, TechCrunch senior reporter Becca Skutak, alongside senior reporter Dominic Midori davis Found is produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Our illustrator is Bryce Durbin. Found's audience development and social media is managed by Morgan Little, Alyssa Stringer, and Natalie Kreisman. TechCrunch's audio products are managed by Henry Pickovit. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Music.